This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about magic and perception. I've been thinking about paying attention, about the soul, consciousness, and questioning what we think. I've been thinking about trusting what we know, even in the face of skeptics, about boundaries, personal power, and our place in the universe. My guest today is neuroscientist Mario Beauregard. He is the author of The Brain Wars, The Scientific Battle over the existence of the mind, and proof that we will change the way we live our lives. He is a co-author of The Spiritual Brain, a neuroscientist case for the existence of the soul, which Publishers Weekly calls a lively introduction to a field where neuroscience, philosophy, and secular spiritual wars are unavoidably intermingled. Beauregard is an associate research professor at the Departments of Psychology and Radiology and the Neuroscience Research Center at the University of Montreal. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Um, just one thing. Uh, I'm not affiliated with the University of uh, Montreal anymore, and now I'm with the University of Arizona. Thanks for having me. So let's start with something that it says on the back of Brain Wars. It says, a neuroscientist offers evidence of where the brain ends and consciousness begins. <laughs> and I thought, okay, after reading the book, I thought that's a very loaded statement in this field. Mm-hmm. And I, I had heard an interview with you and with um, someone that had said that your title of that book in France is different. What's the title of the book in France of Brain Wars? Uh... Les pouvoirs de la conscience, the literal translation would be uh, the powers of consciousness. So how much of the war element um, exists culturally uh, in Canada and the United States maybe versus Europe? Just struck me that the the title of the book was so so different. Oh, it's as intense in um, Canada and United States than in uh, Europe, in France in particular. And the battle started uh, about 400 years ago when the, um, the Europeans, uh, the, the founding fathers of uh, modern science, many of them were uh, from France or Germany, England also, uh, and they wanted to uh, take a distance to separate themselves from the power of the church. and. Uh, so they, they proposed a, a number of what we could call postulates or hypotheses about the nature of the world and reality. For instance, um, materialism. This is the idea that everything in the universe is composed of uh, matter, uh, small corpuscles. At the time, uh, they compared the, these, uh, the matter to uh, minuscule, very tiny uh, billiard balls, for instance. And other postulates was the idea that uh, you could reduce everything complex in the world, like a brain, for instance, to sim- something much simpler, more elementary, more basic. So, in the case of the brain, it would be uh, a collection of neurons. And if you go down uh, at a more elemental level, the neuron itself, the nerve cell, is a collection of uh, part- material particles. So that's the, the, the idea. Um, so you, you see these, uh, these hypotheses, after a few centuries, they became uh, like uh, dogmas. They became, uh, they blended and they, they became associated with a belief system or an, an ideology that was called scientific materialism. And since then, during the 19th and the 20th century, and even today, 
this uh, ideology is still very influential in the academic world. So for many scientists today, uh, science is synonymous with materialism. So that's uh, the ideology. And the idea that in respect to that, in that the brain, the belief system implies that the brain is nothing but the, the physical activity. Yes, so there's no, uh, for instance, uh, consciousness and personality surviving uh, physical death. That's what it means. It also means that we are like prisoners. We are bio-physical uh, machines, uh, sophisticated machines, but yet we're, we're, uh, we only have the illusion of thinking, of having thoughts and intentions and beliefs. But in reality, these things are only uh, physical processes in our brains, and they don't have really uh, any uh, efficiency uh, in the world. We're, so we're like machines, determined by physical processes and by our neurons, by our chemical messengers in our brains, by our genes. Too. So that's the basic uh, idea of scientific and, and so with that, that the the idea that our thoughts could have any effect either on our experience or on the physical world or even on our brains or our own bodies like in this thinking that's just an illusion exactly yes it's only uh, certain regions of the brain having an impact on other regions of the brain that are connected to uh, all our organs and do you think scientists have forgotten sort of the the idea that these original hypotheses that became dogma were really just taken as a stance in reaction to the historical circumstances of the time and and the thinking of the time. Yeah, the, the, uh, unfortunately scientists do not study history and philosophy. So the most of them do, are not even aware of all I told you. Uh, so they don't know that. They don't, they're not aware that the, the founding fathers of what is considered um, modern science, like Newton, uh, Galileo, Galilei, Descartes, um, all these people were deeply spiritual uh, men. Um, but it's been forgotten, unfortunately. And so we'll talk about this more in detail in, in a little bit. But you and a number of other scientists and modern thinkers have created a manifesto. and. Uh, in, in the manifesto, within that, you sort of define the problem from the perspective of New World scientists. Um, and and it, I'm just going to read a little bit of it from the paper. It says, the nearly absolute dominance of materialism in the academic world has seriously constricted the scientists and hampered the development of the scientific study of mind and spirituality. Faith in this ideology as an exclusive explanatory framework for reality has compelled scientists to neglect the subjective dimension of human experience. This has led to a severely distorted and impoverished understanding of ourselves and our place in nature. And also pretty much like a pretty sad and depressing, I think, idea of our place in nature. Yes, but uh, however, uh, there's a, you know, things are now changing. Uh, and very rapidly since a few decades and um, the, the thing that started the, the ball was uh, a century ago uh, the advent of the, um, the new physics uh, quantum physics because in uh, quantum physics the uh, founding fathers the pioneers of quantum physics realized that 
the world was not really composed of minuscule, tiny uh, billiard balls. Um, you know, they, they, they start to talk more in terms of uh, tendencies for uh, particles to exist. But in reality, these uh, tendencies are also related to what the physicists uh, intend to measure with their electronic uh, equipment. So that this is called the observer effect in quantum physics. And it means that what we call the physical world is not really separate from the psychological world, the world of our psyche. There's a, a deep interconnection between these two aspects of uh, reality. And that's what they discovered in quantum physics. Many physicists do not like this idea, but they are they're stuck with uh, this phenomenon and they don't know uh, how to, what to make of this. But it, it tells us that, and uh, I have to say here that all the, the founding fathers of quantum physics were also very uh, spiritual people. And they, uh, they realized that consciousness is not uh, a sort of byproduct of brain activity, but instead it is a fundamental principle uh, in the universe. And perhaps it is the primary principle. This has been written by um, Max Planck, for instance, and by uh, Heisenberg and others, uh, the pioneers of quantum physics. So that was the uh, that was the first scientific event that started to challenge the old uh, materialist worldview. And uh, during the last decades, uh, we've seen several empirical phenomena studied uh, investigated by an increasing number of scientists across the world and phenomena like the, the near-death uh, experience, for instance, or the out-of-body experience, um, but there are many other phenomena. So I want to go next into some of the amazing examples you have in your book of the evidence of placebo effect and these near-death experiences and, and healing based on the idea of something was going to help or wasn't going to help. I mean, there's some incredible examples. But you touched on something that's really interesting to me that has been throughout reading your, both your books and, and your, your other work, is this idea that the quantum physicists were willing to make a huge shift, not so much in regard to the existence of consciousness, but in the idea of of what matter is made of, right? The idea prior that everything was solid and hard, which has transformed completely to the idea that what the latest thing, that it's, it's all sound waves. And, and somehow that transition seems to have been more smooth, and there seems to have been more acceptance among all physicists, right? Traditional physicists, people didn't sort of hold the ground and say, no, 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 we are closing our eyes to all that new science. We're going to stay steadfast that everything is made of hard, distinct, solid atoms. Yeah, it has taken 30 years in, within the physics community to reach such a shift. But uh, in the case of uh, the, the consciousness uh, research, the battle is much harder. And, and what do you think the distinction is there? Why was it that there are new ways to prove the differences in physics that they can use their old modalities of testing and experimentation and within those old modalities they were able to prove these new theories? Well, because the uh, there were, uh, uh, in physics, they discovered a few types of uh, phenomena that did not fit at all uh, what we call now classical physics. So the 
the equations that they were using in classical physics and their theories, uh, they were not able to explain these, uh, these few phenomena. And that's why this, this, they began to look for other kinds of theories and to develop uh, you know, new equations. And so they discovered after a few decades that these new theories and equations were able now to explain uh, the, the microphysical phenomena that were not accountable for by classical physics. So that was the main reason uh, why they accepted the new tools. But it's not all physicists who like, uh, went, like to entertain the implications of the observed effect, for instance. It's not the case at all, even today, after 100 years. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, evidence in, in your book, The Brain Wars, because it really is. You just read one and then another and another, and you're just thinking, oh my gosh, how can how could anyone turn a blind eye to this? Yes, well, they can, it's because it's a matter of uh, personal belief, and um, scientists are humans, and humans have their own beliefs, and they are these beliefs are emotionally charged. And many of these people, uh, my colleagues, have done their entire career based on the old paradigm of neuroscience and consciousness. So it's very difficult for them. And also, it's the same thing for uh, many philosophers of mine. They are not willing to uh, tell you that they're, you know, they, they built their entire career on, you know, fallacies. So the, the, the medical community, which isn't always the quickest to, to shift and change, seems to have, at least in practice, and it, even if not in sort of stated philosophy, um, embraced the idea that what a doctor says to a patient matters, or that the placebo effect is real. You have yes. a lot of examples in your book regarding those two areas. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. But what they will tell you, many, many medical doctors will tell you, is that it's simply uh, certain regions of the brain that are acting upon other regions and also on other uh, physiological systems connected to the, to the brain. That's what they will tell you. So they, they don't like the idea that something non-physical, like a thought or a belief, could change the activity of the brain, could even alter the the structure of the brain in terms of gray matter and white matter and so it's they don't see how something non-physical could have an impact upon something that is physical so one of the reasons that explain the resistance is the absence of theory that is accepted by everybody so it's not that they don't acknowledge the the effect, it's that they can accept the theory about how it's working. Yes, they, do, they, they can accept the effect, but they will differ with regard to the uh, interpretation of the phenomenon. Um, so they don't, they, uh, they cannot accept the idea that, like I said, that something non-physical like a, a belief, even though it's implemented through the brain, it is not you know, something physical, because a thought doesn't have to have a volume, a mass, uh, or a shape. You cannot measure it with physical tools, yet it's extremely powerful. And in fact, it's what uh, conduct uh, the, the world. But, uh, you know, we need, 
it's it's very hard for a materialist to uh, or we, now we call them physicalists physicalists or materialists it's hard for them to understand how this is possible so in post-materialism i just grabbed a couple of the tenets from your manifesto and one is there is a deep interconnectedness between mind and the physical world and the other one I grabbed was scientists should not be afraid to investigate spirituality and spiritual experiences since they represent a central aspect of human existence but from what you said earlier it seems that there's a lot of us and and them and the camps were drawn early that classical science evolved as a response sort of against spirituality and spiritual experience and, well, the, and that the being the focus. The church, I would say. The, the power of the church. The power of the church. The Roman Catholic Church, yeah. But not, not against spirituality per se. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the manifesto for post-materialist science. Mm-hmm. Um, it was created in 2014. There's over 200 scientists, philosophers, MDs, and thought leaders who signed it and probably many more since since the, the then, um, and from what I've seen. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how the idea of creating that came about, and then what it was like at, at that first conference? Yes. Um, well, it was a great event, a watershed event, I think, because it was the first time, historically, that a number of uh, scientists uh, gathered at the same place and uh, the, the purpose of this was to examine the evidence for a new type of paradigm within science that we decided to call post-materialist. Uh, but like, like I said before, we're not historically the first one because you could say that quantum physics is post-materialist, but they were not using the term 100 years ago. But to do that, well, intentionally, consciously, uh, it was the first time historically, and so at the at that meeting, how it it started? Well, uh, I don't know if you know uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz. He's done research on uh, mediumship at the University of Arizona. Do you know him? I do know of him. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So he's a he's a psychologist, a research psychologist, and um, a few months. Uh, or the year before the, uh, the, the meet, this meeting, Dr. Schwartz called me and uh, he asked me if uh, I needed help. And that was funny because at where I was at the University of Montreal, uh, there was a change in terms of administration. So the, the, the people there who supported my work for several years were all gone. And now I had many enemies at the medical school where I was working. And these people decided not to give me my tenure. They didn't tell me that like this because it's not legal to do that. But I heard comments after some of the, um, the meetings they had, and they decided to let go of me, not to renew my contract as a scientist. And the, the main reason was what I was saying publicly and the kind of research I was conducting with regard to uh, spiritual experiences, near-death experiences, and so on and so forth. And so Schwartz invited me at the University of Arizona. That's uh, that's how I went there. And our first project was this idea of uh, a meeting, a meeting about what we call post-materialist uh, science. And 
uh, during this meeting, we invited uh, scientists, very well-known people uh, from all fields of science, almost. So there were uh, biologists, medical doctors, neuroscientists, and very famous people in some cases, like uh, Rupert Sheldrake, uh, the uh, British biologist, and uh, Charles Tart at the University of California, Davis, um, Larry Dossie, a visionary uh, medical doctor, and so on and so forth. Anyway, so we all gathered together during a few days, and uh, the first um, the first uh, byproduct of the meeting was what we call the manifesto for a post-materialist science. And so we, from various angles, perspective, uh, we all came to the same conclusion that uh, that well, it's in the manifesto. But one of the the main conclusion is that the brain seems to act as an interface for what we call mind, mental functions, and consciousness. So it's not, it's like um, a TV set, for instance. It's not the TV set, your TV set that is actually creating, producing the electromagnetic waves emitted uh, uh, from the, uh, by the TV station. And it's a little bit the same kind of relationship that we have uh, between mind and uh, brain. This explains why uh, when there's a lesion in a specific portion of the brain, of course, some mental functions uh, will be uh, impaired, affected. But that doesn't mean that um, the brain itself creates what we call mental functions. Well, I, I loved when you, in your book, I think you mentioned it as thinking of it as a, the brain is a transmitter and the idea yep. that some people think the music is coming from that rather mm -hmm. than realizing it's coming through that and that you, yes, if you smash the transmitter, it stops working, but the music is still playing uh, wherever it originated. Yes, yes. I thought that was a great example. And what was the goal when you, when you got together, what, what was the idea? I mean, it's funny because the more you speak, it's like, okay, there are these two very distinct camps and you had been working in one in Montreal and at that university and they sort of tossed you out, but you're in good company because they seem to have rejected the Dalai Lama as well. And so I think, I think you're in a better, you know, if you're in a camp with the Dalai Lama and Deepak Chopra and Oprah and, and yes. um, Schwartz, it, it might be the better camp. So, I think so. I think, yeah. <laughs> so, so what was the goal of the conference? Well, the, the goal was to um, examine the, uh, the impact uh, or the evidence, the scientific evidence uh, in various fields. But I guess I mean why? Why? What are you after? Why? As far as cre having the conference, creating the manifesto. Because What's we this want sort of larger goal? The, the, the ultimate goal is to create a new paradigm shift, a major shift in science. A shift like uh, the one that happened uh, with Copernic, uh, you know, several hundred years ago. And also a shift like uh, what happened a, year, uh, a century ago in physics. Because now there's too much evidence, uh, especially regarding uh, the science of consciousness, uh, that, this, that the evidence that it, that does not fit at all with the old uh, materialist theories of the mind-brain relationship. Uh, and it's clear now, it's becoming clearer uh, all the time, that what we call mind and consciousness are uh, fundamental principles in the universe. They are not for the product of brain activity. But the, 
mental functions and consciousness are expressed and are, they are limited through the kind of nervous systems we have. So it means that the mental experience of a uh, fly, for instance, is certainly uh, not as rich and complex as that of a human being because of this kind of limitation. Um, and it's, but what's interesting is that there seems to be trace of consciousness and mental activity at very elementary level. Some theoretical physicists uh, believe that what they call uh, elementary particles, like electrons, for instance, they do have a certain kind of uh, what we could call proto-consciousness. They exhibit certain um, mental capacities, which could explain, in part, uh, the so-called observer effect in physics. If you take the case of certain very simple molecules or unicellular organisms, like bacteria, and they also exhibit uh, certain types of mental uh, functions. And um, there's an increasing level of complexity, like I was saying, uh, in terms of uh, the nervous system. The more complex your nervous system is, the more complex will be also your uh, conscious experience and your uh, capacities also will be greater. Um, and so it seems that uh, where we are going now in terms of science, there's a, it's becoming closer to the essence of uh, many great spiritual traditions of the world. This is very interesting. All right, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to talk. You mentioned Rupert Sheldrake, and so I want to talk about his banned TED Talk um, and, and why that was banned and then the response to it, and then we'll focus on the second half of the show on this paradigm shift. This is Ellie Newman, and I'm speaking with neuroscientist Mario Beauregard, and we are talking about the brain, the soul, and consciousness, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, catch them. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with neuroscientist Mario Beauregard. And so let's talk a little bit about um, Rupert Sheldrake's talk, uh, TED Talk in 2013 that was initially uh, up on the site, then it was banned, uh, then there was a huge controversy, and in response, the TED Talk is back up, but is on this sort of segregated site so that people can listen to it. And I'm sure because of it, it got more views than it may have ever gotten um, prior to the ban. So it actually turned out to be a really good thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's a good illustration of uh, what I was talking about earlier. Um, scientific materialism as become an ideology within science. And um, in the case of uh, uh, this talk in particular, we, uh, we discovered, Rupert and uh, myself and other colleagues, that um, TED was controlled by a group of um, uh, scientists. They were very much influenced by them. And these scientists, mainly biologists, uh, who believes greatly in the Darwinian theory of evolution, they, um, they feel threatened by biologists like Sheldrake who proposed alternatives to the Darwinian conception of the world. Um, and uh, so, you know, they, they are, uh, so there's really a battle between uh, these two camps. You know, well, it's, the, it's people funny. like Rupert versus 
these uh, I, these people can be extremely mean. They try to control everything in terms of information. So internet, for instance, they, they try to control uh, websites and my own website, Rupert's website, and so on and so forth. They can attack you. They can even attack you physically. Uh, and so for them, it's it's really a cultural war. They see that well, and it was an, an anonymous scientific board. And if it, it's hmm? sort of ironic in the sense that they're behaving exactly as to what they had been fighting um, hundreds of years ago with their formation, the control of the church and, and yes. you know, trying to eradicate and quiet any dissenting or alternative voice uh, whereby they might lose control. Yes, now they're doing exactly the same thing to others, to other scientists. And yeah. yet it seemed like the populist vote was definitely on Sheldrake's side. And I think that's what you're mentioning as part of this um, paradigm shift that's been going on and, and gaining momentum in the last, what, probably 25 years. Yeah, I would say that, yes, exactly. I yeah. had heard an interview recently with Oprah um, with uh, Jeff Weiner, the CEO of uh, LinkedIn, and on one of the influencer interviews. And she was talking about having done a show you know, 25, 30 years ago with Carolyn Mays, and she had to stop the taping because the audience didn't have the language and wasn't understanding what she meant about everyone having a, a mind, a body, and uh -huh. a spirit. And they, they didn't seem to have any problem with the idea they had a mind and a body, but the mind was definitely, they thought they had minds, not just brains. Um, but that they, they didn't have the language around the, the spirit or the soul. And she ended up having Gary Sukov, who wrote The Seat of the Soul on the show, I think yeah. 35 times or so in the next, next um, 20 years. And now she has an entire network uh, dedicated toward consciousness and spirituality, and she said those were always her favorite shows. Um, so certainly the general population, which I think we can gauge by Oprah, um, is on board as far as believing that we all have minds and consciousness and souls and spirit. Yes, and uh, in fact, uh, a majority, I would say that uh, a great number of scientists agree with it, with this view, but they don't say that publicly because they are afraid to lose, uh, you know, something in terms of funding or uh, their advancement in terms of career and so on and so forth. So they, they won't say that publicly, but, uh, you know, when the doors are closed, uh, I receive many uh, confessions about that. So it, and is we're talking only about a handful of extremists who are very visible all over the planet, very vocal. But, you know, we're talking about, what, 25 people, very influential? Not more than that. Probably. And is the official position still that we are biological robots purely at the control of our brains? It's not discussed uh, openly within uh, science, within biology. So, because the, the scientists do not dare go there. They don't want to go there because they don't want to have problems. So, uh, so, and so it's, if you want to publish something in a very uh, mainstream journal within science, it's difficult to do that. So you have to consider alternative journals. And so that, you know, it's because the, the editors of the journal are afraid themselves. So there are a lot of people who, are, who live in fear within science 
and uh, they are waiting that something dramatic happens before they, you know, they go out publicly. And so do you feel with the group of scientists that you're working with now, is the goal to work sort of independently or do you still feel this pressure and desire to convince the other camp? Uh, the other camp, I don't think it's feasible because uh, like, you know, it's some of these people will tell you that even if they would see something that they don't believe in, they would continue to not believe in this after. And uh, so there's nothing you can do with this kind of people. Yeah. So, so, so the goal is not to convince them. The goal is, is to convince open-minded scientists, and also which represents the majority, I would think, and also uh, the population, the general population. But the general public already believes like this. Uh, um, so this is why I believe it's only a matter of a few decades because before we undergo a, a, a major shift. With it, so. well, well, it was interesting because I was thinking, I actually was thinking in, my, in a dream I had last night, um, that it's like someone telling me that I don't have hands and feet. And I'm thinking, well, no, I do. I know I use them all the time and, and I'm experiencing them. And I thought for me it's the same with telepathy or, you know, that, that I don't really... It doesn't have to be proven to me outside for me to know that it's true because I have it in my personal experience. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, exactly. we're in a very conservative place here in Idaho, and I think, you know, we have Reiki therapists at our local hospital. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> so, so it certainly seems the populace is, is shifting. Mm -hmm. Also, yes. Yeah. Fortunately, so, at last. So I want to talk a little bit about that sort of dig your feet in and what you mentioned, like even though they might themselves experience something or see something, it's like, no, no, I, I won't look. There was a movie um, and a lot of controversy around this movie, but a movie called What the Bleep Do We Know? Yeah. And regardless of the controversy, there were a number of sort of scientific theories that were called out for being like, this is something we believed wholeheartedly, and it's clearly been proven wrong, you know, the earth is not flat, and, and from there on. Um, is there not any sort of appreciation that science is something that is evolving and growing and changing, as de and dependent upon the tools that they have to test various hypotheses? Well, uh, most um, scientists do not study the philosophy of science or the history of science. But so the, the people who are the most aware of this are the what we call the philosophers of science, like uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, with his uh, major book in the, the 1960s about the structure of scientific revolutions. But um, I would say that uh, post-materialist scientists, as I call them uh, now, uh, are more aware of this. Uh, this phenomenon in the evolution of science as a function of the uh, sometimes the beliefs of the time or uh, the discoveries of new phenomena uh, and so on and so forth. So, and now I, I just um, edited, I was the chief editor of a new book that is um, a new book written not only for scientists but mainly for the general public, for lay people. And it's about the emerging new scientific paradigm, the post-materialist paradigm. And it's a collection of essays by all sorts of uh, scientists, uh, post-materialist scientists, but also philosophers, 
worth talking about this uh, this new scientific uh, shift that is uh, coming. Uh, um, so it's quite interesting. It's uh, published by. Uh, it's based in. Uh, Vancouver publishes in Vancouver. Uh, it's called Pan Media, and it will be published at the beginning of uh, next year. And so, if you read that, and lay people will have, it will be easy uh, to read for everybody. You will have the picture. Of wh what is the uh, emerging new paradigm uh, within science, and, and what is the evidence, and also what are the implications of the uh, new paradigm for society? It's all in this uh, in this book. And how about the universities? Because I would guess that one frustration with the post-materialist scientists is that you, you want to have funding for your studies. You want to have university positions. Is that shifting at all? Are those spaces opening up? Well, it, it depends where you are. Because, uh, for instance, at the University of Arizona, they are very open-minded at, at the Department of Psychology. Because they have accepted that somebody like Gary Schwartz, who has been investigating mediums for several years, and also, um, you know, energy and healing and stuff like that, and he's very well respected by his colleagues. Because before this career at the University of Arizona, he was a, a very big name, you know, he, he's uh, been working at Yale and Harvard and you know, Cornell, I believe. So, so, so. People over there will respect that, and you have also other institutions um, in California, and so it depends where you are located uh, in the United States or in Canada. Uh, but it's uh, it's progressing uh, because the fact that we have published the manifesto and that uh, we have not experienced any problem with the uh, university over there is uh, you know it, it's a thing with that you know there. The, so it's, uh, I think it's progressing, and you take other countries like uh, Brazil, for instance, did you know that they are at major universities, uh, in, for instance in Sao Paulo, there are many researchers investigating mediums, and, and the medical doctors in many hospitals in Brazil, major hospitals, are working in collaboration with mediums. Uh, so it depends where you are on, on the planet. Well, I don't know, Mar, um, if you're familiar with the article that was in March um, this year from the University of Virginia. Uh, Josh Barney wrote an article entitled, They'll Have to Rewrite the Textbooks. Nope. It was regarding, a, a, I'll read from the article, it's a stunning discovery that overturns decades of textbook teaching. Researchers at the School of Medicine have determined that the brain is directly connected to the immune system by vessels previously thought not to exist. I really did not believe that there were structures in the body that we were not aware of. I thought the body was mapped, said Jonathan Kipnis, a professor in the Department of Neuroscience. And um, how these vessels could have escaped detection when the lymphatic system has been so thoroughly mapped through the body is surprising on its own. Lee said, it will fundamentally change the way people look at the central nervous system's relationship with the immune system. And so this is, I think, one area where everyone else is kind of like, well, yeah, duh, we could have told you that our brain was connected to our immune system. Um, yeah. But here is, 
science is, is accepting it because they've seen it. And I heard someone interviewed regarding it, and they said, well, we missed it because we weren't even looking, because we were so certain that the theories have always been that the brain was this separate functioning system, completely independent of all the other systems, so we didn't even look. Yeah, that's the power of belief. Uh, and, and it plays a key role in science, uh, as well as in other spheres of human activity. Yeah. And so is that then discovery... Um, a peg in on your side is that then you know sort of shifting scientists a little closer to wow maybe we don't we don't have all the answers and things might not be as separate and closed as we seem yeah well it provides you uh, information about a possible uh, biological mechanism allowing the interaction of what we call mind with the brain and the immune system so that could help uh, understand why emotions, for instance, or uh, intentions can have an impact on the immune system and also the other systems of the body connected to the brain. And is part of the work of the post-materialists to create new ways and sort of means and modalities for testing some of these hypotheses. I was thinking about sort of science using the wrong yardstick and means maybe, and I was kind of imagining uh, uh, using a ruler to measure the speed of a rocket taking off from Earth. And just because you can't measure it with that ruler, it doesn't mean that that rocket isn't soaring up to space. Yes, yes, that's a, that's a big problem. Because, yeah, that's exactly the problem, because they will... Materialist scientists will tell you, we don't see uh, spiritual realms. We don't see thoughts or things like that. So they don't exist. We can, they don't exist because, but they don't say that, because we cannot measure it. But it's, it's so funny because it's like um, at the beginning of the television, uh, to use this metaphor, there were only a few channels accessible. And so it was not possible to have access to other programs and so the it was very limited nowadays you can have access to hundreds of channels but in order to have access to these other channels depicting all sorts of aspects of reality you need to be able to switch to uh, other frequencies other electromagnetic frequencies otherwise you don't have access to the, the channels and it's, it's the same thing regarding other realms, non-physical realms, spiritual realms. It's not, like you said, it's not because you don't have the tool to measure it that it does not exist. But many scientists have uh, a problem uh, with this. They only believe what they can see, they can measure. They are, because they are skeptical by nature. I still don't really understand how the television works, and yet I know I can turn it on well, uh, well, and, and see a, a show. Well, because you have access to all sorts of, uh, you have different electromagnetic uh, frequencies that allow you to connect with a specific channel. But it, so if, if you cannot, uh, if you always connect to the same uh, few electromagnetic frequencies, your picture of the world will be very limited. But now, if you call your cable company and they will give you the access to hundreds of channels, which means you can, your TV set can now connect with hundreds of electromagnetic. It, it's broadened the universe by broadening its connection to the existing receptors. 
Yeah, so that is exactly what we are proposing. This is the ultimate, the goal of the manifesto and the new book and uh, the uh, the future major shift in science. That's that's the goal to connect to expand uh, reality. Which in turn will lead to what? I found it interesting, the sort of connections that were talked about a little bit in the manifesto, that by expanding the human capacity to better understand the wonders of nature and our place in it and the spirit and, and the sort of core fabric of the universe, that that will lead to, and I'll let you talk about, the ideas of what kind of world that produces. Well, it's a worldview that uh, is very, I would say, similar to certain spiritual traditions. So. Yeah, we don't. According to this this view, we're not separate from other human beings. We're deeply interconnected, but we're also interconnected with trees, uh, with flowers, with animals, with everything that is living. And also, it seems that we're connected with what we cannot see at the um, atomic and subatomic levels. And it includes uh, molecules and very simple organisms, and so everything seems to be uh, interconnected. So it's a holistic view, and in this view, um, mind and consciousness, and even we could say spirit or soul, play uh, a key role. And uh, it's even possible that, um, even though we say that. The, the material world uh, is a fundamental aspect of reality and that mind and consciousness represent another aspect of reality, major. I personally believe that at the beginning, uh, mind or consciousness preceded what we call the, uh, the physical world. That for me, mind and uh, consciousness are more primary, if you will, than what we call matter uh, and uh, the physical world, but it, it changes the it changes the way we perceive the world, and also it will change the uh, the way we perceive our own capacities. Because if we're deeply interconnected with all levels of manifestation, then we have amazing capacities that are, are still dormant uh, in us. That's what it means, and so the the impact of such a, a scientific revolution could be greater, I believe, than the Copernican uh, revolution a few centuries back. I saw also, um, I was sort of when I was thinking about, okay, what, you know, what, what is the why? Why do they care? Um, and uh, on the manifesto, it talked about the, not just frustration, but we'll start with frustration of um, material science, um, not acknowledging the phenomena, and then rejecting publication of strong science findings that are in support of a post-materialist framework. But the thing that I came that I saw that came up again and again was that this felt antithetical to the true spirit of scientific inquiry. That that's the knife that might might hurt the most. Mm -hmm. Yes, and now with the, uh, all the uh, communication uh, systems that we have, uh, including uh, the web, um, if it's not possible to publish this, uh, this new evidence, then you have to uh, go public with it. That's another possible strategy now. So you can publish it within, uh, in books, 
uh, written for lay people uh, and so on and so forth. That's what this is exactly what uh, Charles Darwin did. He did not publish his findings in scientific journals. He published them in a book. Um, so that's that's one way to circumvent this um, censorship problem. Um, but there are also now new journals, uh, much more open-minded and new editors, uh, fortunately. And and how would you define the what is the true spirit of scientific inquiry? It's uh, what is called. It's a, a position that is called uh, that was called by William James, the father of American uh, psychology and also a philosopher. He called that radical empiricism. It's the idea that you consider all sorts of phenomena if you want to study something. Uh, in the case of mind and consciousness, means that you will study all sorts of experiences related to consciousness. It can be altered states of consciousness, spiritual experiences, near-death experiences, and so on and so forth. So you don't restrict yourself to simply or solely the uh, phenomena that fit well with the old worldview. You know? So that, to me, that's the essence of the, uh, the scientific uh, spirit. What was the the primary example that might come to mind for you when when you were writing Brain Wars that sort of exemplified um, the most extreme like evidence for post materialism that like okay you hear this story you read about this story this has to this has to sway you at least a little bit yeah well it's the um, it's when you have near death experiences that are induced by a cardiac arrest uh, why because when there's a cardiac arrest, uh, the heart stops, breathing stops, and if you're measuring the electrical activity within the brain using uh, what we call an electroencephalogram, or EEG, you'll see that the uh, electrical activity of the brain will vanish within usually 10 to 20 seconds. So in that kind of state, according to uh, medicine, the person is considered to be clinically dead. Yet, during the last 15 years, there have been five different studies around the world showing that I think nearly 200 patients, uh, while they were clinically dead, following a cardiac arrest, they were able to be conscious, to have perceptions, to have memories, to, in some cases, they were able to report veridical information about the uh, reanimation procedures uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, dialogues between the, the doctors and the nurses uh, and other details also that were later on confirmed after they were uh, reanimated and so to me it's the most uh, most challenging type of evidence for uh, the materialist view there were some incredible stories about the effects of placebo and also the acceptance of the effects of placebo by the the pharmaceutical companies and the medical industry but I love the one where the guy had tried to commit suicide and he had taken a, a bunch of these pills and was having all of these deleterious effects he was in the emergency room and then the doctor said oh those were sugar pills they were placebos and 10 minutes later he, he was just fine yeah the, yeah the it's the the twin um the, the reverse side of the placebo that we call the nocebo effect. Yeah, exactly, but it's the same principle. So, yeah, if you think that... Uh, there was another good example. It's not in that book, but um, it, it was uh, during a clinical trial. They were testing a, a new um, 
drug for, uh, uh, I think, prostate cancer, and they, they warned the uh, participants in advance that they could lose uh, their air. And in the placebo group, uh, nearly one-third of the participants, men, they lost uh, their, entirely their hair. <laughs> and they were receiving only the placebo, saline water. So you see, it can be very powerful. Well, there was the guy too, and I thought there are these doctors that would go to very extreme measures, which I thought was wonderful, um, to kind of keep the ruse going. But the one guy who he had taken something and it, 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 he was on death's door with yes. multiple... Uh, tumors and they thought he wasn't going to last through the night and they gave him a, a sugar injection but told him it was this miraculous cure and yes. he walked out of the hospital but then read an article that said it didn't work and came back to the hospital and then the doctor tells him no 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 that article was wrong it definitely is good and I'm going to give you even a stronger version so he's once again healthy, goes home, and then I'm like, this guy has to stop reading the paper because then read a definitive article that, no, this was useless, and then I think dropped dead. Yes, exactly. That's what happened yeah. uh, at the end of the 50s uh, in Long Beach, California. And yeah. I think that's why it stuck in my mind because that's where I grew up, and I thought, all right, <laughs> Long Beach. <laughs> so I want to just end on what's going with you, you've got this new book coming out, and, and moving forward, there was also mentioned on your site a hundred notable scientists call for open study of consciousness. Um, what do you see happening with that in the next few years? Well, uh, we uh, know uh, there's an increasing number of people, scientists and philosophers as well, sign this, uh, this document. Um, and uh, we're planning to organize a, a new uh, a meeting on uh, post-computer science to see where we are now, where we are moving. Uh, and also, we are, um, what I just finished with uh, two colleagues is uh, a paper about the uh, emerging post-materialist paradigm within psychology, post-materialist uh, psychology. So, so we just finished this, uh, and so now we are trying to publish this, this uh, manuscript. And I'm also working for a, on a new book uh, titled uh, Quantum Leap in Consciousness for Lay People. And I, I also published a, a new theory about uh, consciousness that I call Theory of Psychelementarity. It was published in Journal of Consciousness Studies, and so I'm, I'm still refining it. And uh, so it will be in the, my next book. Uh, a quantum leap uh, in consciousness. And uh, experimentally, we're starting a, a project, a very exciting project on, uh, on universal, what we call universal love, or uh, if you will, unconditional love or spiritual love. And we're going to measure, we, we, uh, we just finished uh, a questionnaire to create a, a new scale for measuring this form of love for the first time historically in science and in psychology. And we're going to use this to um, try to see, to correlate uh, what's happening in the brain, in the genes, uh, in the immune system, the endocrine systems, in people who score very high on this uh, scale, who have this capacity, versus in very self-centered people, egotistic people. And so that's uh, a research project that will start soon at the University of uh, Arizona. And uh, if we're able to identify the biological markers of 
universal love, uh, then we'll try to devise a new uh, program or a procedure to help people uh, express uh, more this uh, very important capacity in human beings. So that would be the next step of the, the research program. Well, you're in good company there as well, because oh, yeah. Oprah, Oprah also said in an interview with Jeff Weiner, she said, mm -hmm. you might not believe in God, you might not believe in spirit, you might not understand any of these things I'm talking about, but there's not a person who doesn't believe in the power of love. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, how exciting. Well, we'll hope you'll come back on the show again when, when that book's out, so we can talk about that in detail. And thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. It was enlightening to speak with you. Thanks to you, Ellie. Okay, Mario, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And if people want to find out more about your work and what's going on with post-materialism, where is the best place for them to seek information? The link, it's called Campaign for an Open Science.